Hello, everyone. Jody Heiss here bringing you another edition of the Freedom Podcast. Glad to have you on board with us. Now, coronavirus, that is the big news of the day. It is impacting our economy. It's impacting our jobs. It's impacting government. Really, every aspect of our lives right now, in one way or another, is being defined by coronavirus and what we as a country are going to do about it. It's 10 times more lethal than the flu, uh, and something obviously that we need to uh, take precautions at. That being said, our federal government is in great cooperation with the state and local governments, as well as private industry, to try to figure out and navigate the best steps through this whole thing. Uh, And here to break it down with me today is a fellow Freedom Caucus member, former Army surgeon and ER physician, He's been on with us many times, and frankly, I don't know of anyone more capable of addressing this issue of the coronavirus than Mark Green from Tennessee. So, Mark, thank you so much for joining us. Thanks, Jody, for having me on. Glad to be here. Well, listen, you are uh, you, you are the expert at this. Let's begin just with kind of some obvious. What are some of the symptoms? Everyone now is aware of what we're dealing with but no one really knows what to expect. What do people need to be looking for in terms of their own personal health? What are some of the symptoms that uh, a person might likely experience if they indeed are positive? Yeah, I mean, that's a great question. We want to continue to reinforce, uh, you know, to folks, our constituents and, you know, all Americans that uh, there are specific symptoms. It's slightly different than the flu. Although uh, the similarities are, you know, it starts as an upper respiratory tract infection and then progresses to the lungs and and the lower respiratory tract. Um, But it it doesn't have as much, you know, the runny nose, sore throat is much less than the flu. Um, And interestingly enough, with COVID-19, there's a a significant fever for most patients. Um, Not 100%, but like 80-something percent of the patients will have a, a high fever and some of the new research I was reading this morning uh, coming out of uh, both China and Italy, uh, that fever is a sustained fever. So it stays for several days. Um, so that, that's sort of the... Is it a high model. fever or just a moderate? Yeah, like, 103, yeah, like 103, 104. Okay. All right. Wow. Okay, so uh, obviously the uh, CDC has come out with all sorts of things, but the common sense approach of sanitizing your hands and not touching your face and all this sort of stuff, what, what are the typical precautions that people should be taking? <clears throat> sure, and, uh, you know, again, <clears throat> reiterating all this, you just can't say it enough because, you know, even myself, I catch myself, uh, you know, touching my eye or something like that. But, you know, what they what they basically say is sustained 20 to 30 seconds of hand washing and that still may not, you know, you still uh, have got to really scrub those hands very good. The CDC has a, a video on its website on how to do that. Uh, very clearly, hand sanitizer works if you can find it. Um, right. I, you know, I, I guess I rubbing it, alcohol, would that... Would rubbing, rubbing alcohol would work. It, you know, the hand sanitizer that you buy has a 90 plus percent alcohol level. So you probably could use Everclear as well, you know, some of the alcohols that are very, very high in uh, alcohol. 
but it would have to be very, very high in, in alcohol, not your standard, you know, over-the-counter liquors are going to work, but it's got to be something like uh, rubbing alcohol or Everclear, uh, something like that. Let me ask you this. Just yesterday I saw an article that said six out of seven of those who are low-risk individuals really don't even experience symptoms with this. Is this a, what, what is that all about? Yeah, about 80% of patients are considered uh, mild to moderate, 20% are considered uh, severe or critical. And the critical is about 5% of the people who get the illness. Um, so those patients that are considered mild, they won't even hardly show symptoms. Uh, they may not ever even know they're infected and, and, and then go and transmit the disease thinking that they're well. And that's the, that's the challenge with this particular virus and, and why the social distancing is so important. Even well people... Um, you know, can also uh, still carry the virus. All right. Well, one of the things that uh, we, we've all been watching, all the CDC personnel and uh, Dr. Uh, Fauci and all these different ones talking about a curve and that one of the things that we want to avoid is a, a huge spike to where our uh, a mass number of people get infected at the same time and overwhelms the uh, medical community, hospitals, and so forth. Uh, and so the the severity really increases, obviously, if our medical institutions and hospitals are overwhelmed. So how how do we flatten the curve there? Can you talk to us what, a little bit about that? Yeah, what we're talking about doing is right now we're in the exponential part of the curve. So every day more people get sick than got sick the day prior. And significantly more, right? So what we want to do is decrease the rate of spread of the disease so that, I mean, everybody's going to get it. This thing's going to pass through. You can't, you're, we're not going to be able to stop that. But the, the question is, is how quickly people, particularly those people that are going to need medical resources, so that means a hospital bed or, unfortunately, for those that need a ventilator, um, you know, sort of towards the more severe category, the critical category, if we can spread it out, meaning the rate at which people get sick, then we never rise to a level that's above the medical capacity of, say, ventilators or bed space. And as long as everybody's adhering to the social, distance, social distancing and not going to visit nursing homes and not going to the hospital unless you absolutely have to, um, then... We'll, we'll be okay. We'll be able to flatten the curve, so to speak. All right. Jody Heiss here. We're with the Freedom Caucus podcast. Joining me, Dr. Mark Green, a fellow Freedom Caucus member from Tennessee. All right, Mark, let's talk about uh, what you just alluded to, in, uh, but a little bit further. We obviously have some disproportionate, if you will, uh, high-risk individuals, people probably over the age of 60, certainly individuals with immune uh, deficiencies of one type or another. But right in the middle of all this, we have our millennials who are obviously going to be low risk in all of this. And yet they are, we're, we're being told that they are going to play a significant role in this whole uh, spread or lack of spread of coronavirus across the country. Uh, explain the importance that this thing would have to the millennial age group. Yeah, sure. It's, you know, 
what we what we don't know and what we do know. We we do know that adults can, with lower symptoms can carry the disease to someone else. And the millennials are typically in that age group where their symptoms are going to be very mild. And so they're going to want to continue to go to work. They're going to want to continue to go to bars. They're going to want to continue to go to events. And what the president's task force is asking them to do, you know, you're the key. You're not going to feel sick. But you, and, you, and if you feel sick, it's going to be mild. Don't take it lightly. It could be COVID-19 and you could be spreading it and putting other people who are more vulnerable at risk. So we have with that an issue with the testing. The uh, tests have been rolling out relatively slowly. There's been some uh, no fault of anyone in particular. We just want to make sure uh, what we're being told by the CDC that they're trying to get the right test, make sure it's accurate and all this kind of stuff. Well, that is now in process of being rolled out. So we're going to see tens of thousands of people now being tested. Obviously, we're going to see a sharp increase in the numbers of people who actually are testing positive for coronavirus. That in itself does not necessarily change the curve because those people are affected now, uh, whether we know it or not. We're just going to start finding out as the testing comes about. How important is this whole issue with the testing? Um, I, I think it probably, in my mind, it's important because it lets us as a society know how uh, widespread the problem is. But uh, from an individual person's perspective, uh, if there's no cure or no vaccine, they're kind of in the same boat with the test or without. How, how do we, what is the role of the test? So, obviously, the test doesn't save anybody's life. I mean, you don't take a test and get and it heal the disease. However, some of the new research that's coming out, and I was reading, I got up this morning at like 4.45 and just sat down and started reading the medical literature um, you know, that I have access to as a physician, and it looks very promising uh, that chloroquine might, or, or I mean, it might, cure the disease, it may even, just like it does with malaria, keep you from getting the disease. There's a study out of Australia and now a study out of China. So both chloroquine and remdesivir, which remdesivir was an antiviral uh, that was developed for Ebola. Now, it didn't do as well against Ebola as we wanted it to, but apparently in early studies, it looks like it might be showing promise with uh, COVID-19. So, you know, that makes testing a little more important because if you've got flu, well, we'll give you uh, amantadine or Tamiflu. And if you've got COVID-19, well, we can put you on chloroquine and remdesivir. So it, it's now becoming a little bit more important to have the test, at least for those individuals who are symptomatic. If you're not symptomatic, the test is, advan is an advantage to us in terms of transmission and, and determining if the person... You know, do we, like like uh, Dr. Fauci told us the other day on, on government oversight, we still don't know 100% if children are carriers. You know, can a child who's asymptomatic give the disease to uh, the grandparents that they're visiting? But wouldn't you kind of presume that they do? I mean... Sure. I mean, it would make sense. Right. I mean, it, it, but, but we don't know. You know, you know and medical guys, they like to work with certainty. And, and understand exactly what that degree of certainty is with what's called the confidence interval. You know, biostatistics gives them the ability to say, well, one out of 12 times, X is going to happen. One out of four times, Y is going to happen. 
So they they like to think along those lines. Well, let me ask you real quickly on the two medications that you mentioned. Of course, there's a ton of research taking place right now to try to find a vaccine uh, and all these types of things. Are you saying that these two medications are already showing some promising signs of uh, possible even cures uh, or prevent uh, preventive measures that these things are, are these two medications readily available? So there's probably a shortage of chloroquine just because it's it's the older malaria drug. Uh, actually, there's hydroxychloroquine that came along after that, which is a little more safer to take. And then mefloquine came along after that. Um, of course, the military found that there were some problems with mefloquine. But, um, you know, there, so there's, there's not a lot on the shelf. But it's a generic drug, probably costs five cents a pill. Um, you know, and they could be manufactured relatively quickly then. Uh, well, I think so. You know, we've got some some supply chain issues with China, the folks that gave us the virus. So it's, uh, you know, that's a question I don't have an answer to. But, but uh, chloroquine, assuming that it can be mass produced, is pretty easy, you know, pretty easy to make. And. And it's generic, so it shouldn't cost uh, shouldn't cost an arm and a leg. Wow. Well, that's great news, encouraging news, and it'll be interesting to keep an eye on that as uh, more tests go into it specifically as it relates to the coronavirus. All right, here we are. Uh, Dr. Green, my guest, uh, Freedom Caucus member from the great state of Tennessee. Uh, Dr. Green, here we are. We are watching virtually a shutdown of our nation. Businesses shutting down, sporting events shutting down, schools shutting down, uh, colleges, K through 12, just a, across the board. Um, what's your take on all of this? Is this a, an overreaction? Well, that's really hard to say because, you know, we're still watching this virus as it happens. And if you look at Italy, we do know that from their experience, had they done what we're doing now, they probably would be uh, in a much better place. It, it goes back to flattening that curve and making sure we're not at a point where, you know, we've got 160,000 ventilators in the country and we've got 180,000 people who need a ventilator. You know, that's, that's a scenario none of us wants to be in because then physicians have to decide who lives and dies. Right. You know, that triage becomes much more relevant at that point. So, you know, again, um, are we overreact overreacting? Probably. Can I say so definitively? No. I guess time will tell us. When all time will that. tell us. Yeah. Well, well, let's transition a little bit. I think this is a, a good segue into the, the whole question of the economic side of this virus uh, you and I, we have now voted on two different bills. The first one, $8.3 billion, that we both voted for, a bill that specifically tries to target the virus, everything from uh, the, the research and hopefully finding vaccines to uh, keeping the public informed, making sure we have a supply chain and all these kinds of stuff, very specific to providing uh, research and hopeful answers for the virus and for states to be able to do the same. The second vote that we took, we both voted against. It is much broader and, in my opinion, will be devastating to small businesses 
And this is where the economic side of this uh, becomes a very significant question by shutting down everything, by uh, one thing that the bill did, make small businesses uh, for three months, up to three months, have paid leave for their workers to go away. I mean, you have a problem with the government forcing this, but you also have a problem with small businesses. How do they survive if their employees are not there? So uh, talk to us a little bit about the economic side of this thing. Well, it's just the heavy-handed government. Another example of the heavy-handed government, what the original bill, the 110-page bill that was passed Friday night, well, I guess I should say early Saturday morning uh, around 1230, 1240 a.m., um, you know, that bill really penalized the businesses out there, well, first off, it was just businesses, 500 employees and less, which, you know, oh, we're not going to, you know, compel Google and, and the big companies out there to, to, to do this. That just makes, that's totally unfair. But but you take that uh, small employer who, let's say he gives three weeks of sick leave a year. What the bill, the original bill did is it said, okay, you have to tack on two more, meaning five weeks of full pay, uh, sick leave, and then, you know, you mentioned the three months after that of two-thirds pay. So, I And mean, that's family leave. That comes under the family right. leave side. Exactly. So there is, there's potential that a, an employee would have to be paid for four-plus months. Hey, what business, business can survive that? Yeah, I know very few that can take that kind of cash flow hit and, uh, and continue to, to prosper. And if you do it in terms, if you fix it in terms of the tax credit, well, one, that's a delayed payment. And two, if you're an entrepreneurial business and you're just getting started, you don't have net revenue, so you don't pay taxes. So that business just goes out of business. Um, now, the, the correction that came out, it was supposed to just be a technical correction, but wound up being 89 pages on Monday to fix what was broken in the one they forced through on Thursday. I'm sorry, on Friday, um, you know, that bill, uh, potentially, and we're still digging into it, uh, may have fixed it with a payroll tax credit, meaning if a business has, let's say they have $100,000 uh, worth of payroll every two weeks, then they would pay to the federal government payroll taxes of $15,300 every two weeks. Well, if they've got four employees that are out, they're having to pay sick leave for those guys. Let's say each of those four, um, you know, makes a thousand dollars a week or a thousand dollars every two weeks. Then, then the, instead of paying fifteen thousand three hundred to the government, that person would pay eleven thousand three hundred to the government, and you know that puts an immediate positive cash flow answer to the problem. Um, the other fix that they put in there is they fix that concurrency. So the sick leave that's mandated can be served concurrent with whatever else that the employer had offered. So it took that issue out as well. So um, those were some, they got us part of the way there. Yeah, it's interesting. You know, I had a constituent business owner just today contact me and said, listen, we can survive the virus. What we cannot survive is our government uh, interfering with, to this extent, our businesses and with those who are working with us. I said, in the long term, we cannot survive that, but we can get over this virus. This is, a, you know, it's alarming to me when the business starts mandating things like this to the private sector. 
Uh, there's so many issues. I mean, uh, with government possibly paying every adult a thousand dollars a piece. I mean, there's so many issues right now uh, that I be- uh, just carry tremendous alarm for for me, and I know it does for you too. Now, the Senate has not yet passed that bill, and yet there is on the horizon yet a third bill to bail out airlines and all this kind of thing. What what do you think the Senate's going to do with the current bill? Um, I think. Honestly, what you're going to see happen now is the all of the goodies that they want to put into the to the various stimulus packages, you know, airlines this much, uh, other industry that much, uh, this thousand dollar check, all of it's going to be rolled into the bill that we sent the Senate. So that that my gut tells me that bill's going to have to come back. To come us. back. Yeah. Wow. Well, it's going to be very interesting with this. And, uh, Mark, I really appreciate your insight onto it. There's no question this has the attention of everyone in this country from a medical perspective, a health safety perspective, uh, but also economic perspective. The ramifications of this are enormous in every direction. So we really appreciate your insight. Thank you for coming on the program. Yeah, glad to be here. Thanks for having me. Well, listen, folks, that's all the time we have for this edition of the Freedom Caucus podcast. We encourage you, if you like this program, we always ask that you rate it and subscribe to it. Uh, You can do so uh, at iTunes or SoundCloud. Also, you can always follow what's happening with the Freedom Caucus uh, on Facebook.com slash Freedom Caucus, also on Twitter, and that is simply at Freedom Caucus. Thank you so much for joining us. Until next time, hope you have a fantastic day.